0: Good morning! Before we move into the sermon this morning, I have an announcement. Next week we're going to have communion together, so if you're going to be watching from home, please gather your um, elements together so that you can partake with us and be ready next week. Today is October 11th, 2020, and our text comes from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the New International Version. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We have before us a continuation of last week's theme. Um, If you were here and paying attention last week, Moses delivers the Ten Commandments orally to the people, and they covenant with God to follow them. And the first two commandments are to not have any other gods before God, and to not make any idols. And so last week, Pastor John talked with us about idols, particularly of other religions, that we pretty easily recognize as idols. And I think when we get to this text, it's really easy to just facepalm and think, these grown adults should know better. What were they thinking? One of the interesting things of this passage is that anywhere that it says God's plural you should have a little note that tells you a God because the plural and the singular aren't that far apart. So this passage could read, come, make us a God, make us God with a capital G, to go before us. And when the calf comes out, in some translations with perfect legitimacy, they translate, this is our God. The problem is, Yahweh doesn't see Yahweh's self in this golden calf. Aaron announces a feast to Yahweh. and The first part of the feast goes pretty well. They make the proper offerings. And then the people get up and participate in revelry. And God says to Moses, "Uh uh-uh, look, the people are already doing it again. I've taken them out of Egypt. We've been walking through the wilderness. I've saved them from their foes who pursued them. Every day I've been giving them their daily bread, this manna, this what is it to eat. We've gone over the laws, but they're not getting it. They've created a golden calf and tried to tack Yahweh onto it, but it doesn't stick. And something that Scott Daniels, the Reverend Dr. Scott Daniels who teaches part-time at um, Northwest Nazarene University has brought to my attention is that one of the recurring themes in the Bible is that God's people have a problem. They find themselves in an empire and the empire kind of creeps into them and shapes who they are and, more importantly, what they ultimately desire for pictures of the good life. You'll notice that when they cast the image of the golden calf, they don't cast an Egyptian god. They don't come out with a calf head and a human body. They get a calf. They haven't wholesale bought what Egypt was selling them. But on some level, the desires of Egypt have seeped into them. And the rest of Exodus is going to be God leading his people through the wilderness, trying to reshape and reform them be the people of God in the world. You'll notice, if you're paying attention, that the people of God, as God gives them the laws and commandments, are specifically not supposed to be like the other peoples around them. They're not going to do the same things as the other people's. They're not going to have the same things as the other people's. Their desires, at a core level of who they are, are going to be shaped to desire Yahweh. And to desire Yahweh's reign in the world. And to live into Yahweh's reign. In church, we typically call this the kingdom. The idea, and Jesus finds himself in the same situation. God's people have a problem. They're in an empire, a Roman empire. And Rome has this idea of what the good life looks like. And the danger is that God's people become so immersed in this that they start to think, That the good life looks more like Rome's idea of the good life and God's idea of the good life. And then in a few generations, you can't tell the difference. It's the same problem they have in Babylon. The danger isn't that the Babylonians are going to kill them all. The danger is that their children are going to be shaped to desire what Babylon wants and then in a couple generations you're not going to be able to tell the difference between the Israelite kids the children of God and the Babylonians because they're going to be aimed in the same direction wanting what the empire wants and so Jesus will sum up for the people the greatest commandment i will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But what does it mean to love in this sense? So often we think of love as kind of nice feeling that we have towards somebody we like, um, the way that we like a hamburger. Um, We don't typically think of love as a driving desire. And we typically think of worship and idols and other things in very religious, But one of the scholars, Timothy Keller, will say, Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. Repeat that. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. And so, we find worship in a variety of places. You may or may not know this, but our word culture comes from the root cult, which means religion. And often when we interact with culture, we want to interact intellectually with it. We want to look at what messages is it bringing into our home. We want to look at advertisements and we want to say, like, what's the message there? We might scan the media that we allow into our house and say, you know, things above this rating are going to bring messages that we don't want into our lives. That's good. We're thinking about it. But what if there's something else that culture does that we never even realize as we participate in it? James K. Smith uh, writes in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, that if you were to land a group of Martian anthropologists in America somewhere, and you were to task them with finding the biggest temple they could find. They would land there. And they'd probably get in a car so they'd be inconspicuous. And they'd park their car and they'd walk through a sea of cars and they would get there and they'd enter. And there would be this beautiful atrium or foyer where you could kind of decompress, let the outside world go. There'd be some maps to orient yourself because this is a large temple. And the temple has lots of little um, chapels in it, but it has a labyrinth connecting them all. And some people will go to this labyrinth, the Martians will note, just to walk the labyrinth, or go to this temple just to walk the labyrinth. You'll notice that inside this temple there are windows and all the windows are in the ceiling. You're completely unaware of the car moat that you left behind. And as you wander through this labyrinth, along the walls are images of the good life in 3D, displaying you to viscerally understand what the good life looks like and time kind of ceases to really matter while you're in this sacred space and you wander into a chapel and you look at all the relics that this chapel has acquired that all point you to the good life There are some acolytes who will come and they'll help you and they'll say, what's lacking in your life? What do you need? And they'll help you find the right thing to help you have the good life. And then you'll take it to the altar where the priest presides. and You'll make your donation and receive the relic that you need for the good life. And you'll leave the chapel with your relic in hand because you don't just give, you get something from this religion too. And you'll wander out, not back into the mode of cars, but back into the labyrinth where you can then enter another chapel. You might not recognize the description because we don't have any close to us. We'd have to make a pilgrimage to get up to one of these temples. But you've seen the outreach for them are on the TV all the time. They show up in mailers in your mailbox, showing you what the good life looks like with the implicit understanding that when you see these images you will know that that's not me and you'll know that they know that's not you but you won't think about that. You'll just know it at a gut level and it will drive you to go make the pilgrimage to visit this chapel, to get what you need to be more like the good life that you've seen. He says his kids tease him about this all the time because this temple that he's describing is the mall. But we don't typically think about it in religious terms because we're only thinking about the messages when we think about religious terms, and we're not thinking about how it shapes our desires. He also says that the biggest worship service of the day today is probably going to happen around five o'clock. When everybody turns on their TV or goes to the gathering, though that's not as likely in the middle of a pandemic, and participate together in very religious rituals that solidify who we are as a people and what we desire in the good life, and that to an outside observer are very, very obviously religious. so dr smith will make the argument we are what we love something jesus told us a long time ago something god told israel's people way before that what we love what we desire what we're moving towards is always being shaped. And these ultimate desires, these ultimate visions of a good life don't like any competition. They're willing to allow you to have other lesser desires coexist with them, but ultimate allegiance demands everything. And whatever ultimate allegiance we give to something will then make all our other allegiances and desires secondary. And so the people of Israel here have come out of Egypt. They've walked away from the whole Egyptian way of being into the wilderness. They've been pursued by the Egyptians and saved by God's hand. They've been fed by God in the wilderness. They've received the commandments of God on an intellectual level and they agree. Yes, we should only worship God, Yahweh. We are in agreement. But their desires are still shaped by Egypt. And when Moses disappears up the mountain and is maybe dead, they look for some symbol, something, of the good life to orient themselves towards and around that will continue guiding them forward. And they don't think of it as an idol. They proclaim this is our God. This is the God who has been working and is going to continue working on our behalf towards the good life. This is Yahweh. Now he has his face palm moment and goes, oh the people don't get it. Go down and take care of this, Moses. And there's a decent chance that I'm just gonna burn them all up and we're gonna start over because they're just not being yeah. reshaped in the way that I want them to be reshaped. So, I have a question for us today. Because we, as the people of God, also find ourselves in an empire. And empires, by nature, go in different directions than Yahweh. Empires, by nature, draw boundary lines and borders. Empires, by nature, elect kings and high officials who stand in the place of God. Empires, by nature, rely on military might to sustain their peace in the world. Empires, by nature, say it's us versus them. And you want to be with us, and you want to be getting good with us? And you want to make sure your allegiance is aligned with us because you don't want to be one of them because we might wipe them out. They're not part of us. They don't belong. You should go home. Yahweh says, God says, no, your kingdom is not of this world. Don't be sucked into the empire's way of shaping you. Your kingdom's eternal. Your kingdom doesn't have any boundaries or borders. Your fellow citizens live in all the different countries of the world. Your ultimate desires are constantly being sought. Your ultimate allegiance is constantly being shaped. And things that desire our ultimate allegiance don't accept competing ultimate allegiances. You'll remember Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and this other desire of a good life. you want. What desire is driving you at the deepest level? And if you think that you might have an ultimate desire, an ultimate vision of the good life to which you're being pointed, or if you think that you absolutely don't have one, you can try this test. The next time you're engaged in one of the activities that clearly isn't affecting us, I've been guilty of this all week, trying to rationalize that no, this doesn't affect me, when it totally does, try changing the way you interact with the ritual. It'll mess with you. God will mess with you. God's been messing with me. Because I realized that one of the things that we do as a religious ritual in church, we all stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Where are the other places in your life? you stand in honor of something? What would happen if you didn't? Our ultimate allegiance as Christians belongs to God. And we get it wrong often not realizing how we've been shaped and formed by the cultural pressures and practices around us. The good news is God doesn't just burn us up like we deserve. God's faithful to God's promise. God continues to give us second chances and reorienting practices to teach us what it means love god with all our heart our soul mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves let's pray god we come to you as a people whose desires are constantly being shaped by our practice
1: We come to you as a people who might not
0: even know at the core of our being what our desire, our ultimate desire is right now. We know the right answer. But we might not know or want to think about the ways that our desires have been shaped. Please. Guide us and have mercy on us, God. Shape us to desire you and to be shaped by you more than anything else in the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. This benediction is for us today. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go and Christ.